G'day, mate. Uh, this is John Dorney, and you're listening to the Sirens of Audio podcast. Now, we've just been hearing disturbing reports of creatures from the Divergent Universe. I'm going to investigate. Ah! There's flaming new termosons in the toy box. Like and subscribe, mate. G'day audiophiles, this is the Sirens of Audio, the show that explores the universe of Doctor Who in the audio medium. I'm Dwayne. And I'm Philip. G'day audiophiles, g'day Dwayne. G'day Philip, I'm very excited. You know why? Yeah, I think I'm excited for the same reason, Dwayne. Well, because the 60th anniversary is coming and we're doing another 60th anniversary themed episode. Oh, well, I was and more excited by the person, to be perfectly honest, but that's okay. <laughs> well, that's all part of it, but I've got to... I've got to say what this is about. And yes, all of our episodes running up to the 60th anniversary are going to have an anniversary type theme. And did you know that it's been almost in January next year, it'll have been 20 years since the Creed of the Cromen. Do you remember that episode, Philip? I do indeed. It changed the shape of Big Finish for a long time. It certainly did. And we're very privileged to have with us uh, the star of that episode, Conrad Westmus. G'day, Conrad. Hello. How are you doing? That was a, that's a quite an introduction. I've never been described as that before, and that's quite something. But thank you. We yeah, can describe lovely. you as many other things along the way, so don't worry about it, Conrad. Welcome. Thank you so much. It's absolutely brilliant to be here. Thank you. No, we were the star of that one because we had a, a brand new companion created. We had the Divergent Universe, which was all very exciting. Um, so we're uh, going to be able to talk with you in depth about that. Has it been a while since you've talked about these these times? Um, actually, it hasn't because um, do you know Kenny Smith of yes. Big from Big Finish? Yeah, and Big we know Finish him well. An expert, and he's wonderful. Well, I think I'm allowed to say this, but basically, because uh, back in the day, the audios we did were all on CDs, and now they're on downloads. Um, some of the downloads don't have extras or interviews and stuff on them. So Kenny has gone back and actually done little little small interviews about some of the stories that we didn't make it that we didn't do interviews or extras for at the time so i've had a little over the last year had to dig out some of these old stories and listen to them and as you say it was, it's 20 years ago so it's that's that's just wild so i have been talking about them a little bit but in a kind of polite official way and that's not what i'm going to do today <laughs> oh good it's actually, it's actually probably 20 years since your first release which was actually omega and that was the first thing you actually did for Big Finish, and that is... That, that would have been August, years. yeah. August. 20 years so, in August. So you've been mm. working for Big Finish for over 20 years. I'm so glad you guys know this stuff, because it's just like a blur. You know, it's funny when you watch like a Doctor Who uh, you know, interview or an extra on TV, and they go, yes, I was in the Terror of Fang Rock in 1985. And you're like, stop getting Doctor Who wrong. You were in it. How can you not know? And now I just like, I can't remember what year, what month. But yeah, it's funny. It's all there. It's in I, I can't remember either. I've just done some research and made some notes. So <laughs> I just pretend like I know what I'm talking about. As long as one of us does, we're all good. At least one of us is doing notes. I just guess. So 
You've been a Doctor Who fan for quite some time too, I believe. Yes, I have. Probably about, I'm 52 now, and I've probably been a Doctor Who fan for about 50 of those. Um, so my first memory of anything at all on this planet uh, is the sea devils coming out of the sea. Um, and I looked up and it was a repeat, it would have been a repeat of it. I think I would have been two, three-ish, so probably late, like three-year-old. And I can vividly remember the sea devils coming out of the sea on a repeat Hazy memories of Pertwee. I can sort of vaguely remember Alpha Centauri, the spiders, that sort of it. But Robot was the first, my first story that I really, I watched every single one since then. My sister was five years older than me, so she loved it. So she was always making sure she was watching it. So I consequently saw everything. So yeah, it was, um, it was you know Tom Baker, Liz Sladen, Ian Martyr, Davros, Zygons, Wirren, you know pyramids. That's that's you know how could I not be a Doctor Who fan you know growing up through that so pretty exciting times what a memory to be seared into into your brain yeah. fantastic yeah so I think fantastic. I had no choice to be a Doctor Who fan mm. see we can say giant giant spiders from Australia we look at them and we go they're not spiders <laughs> <laughs> they're not giant they're not spiders they're not yeah. giant spiders yeah, this, this, yeah, we have the giant spiders in our bathrooms but they're not giant you're hardcore right. yeah Straight. We're going to go a little bit more in depth with you in a minute about your, I guess, your fan journey, your career, and eventually becoming a companion to the Doctor. But before we do that, Philip, do you know what? Yeah. You do? Oh, <laughs> come on. Be a bit more surprised. We're going to jump down the rabbit hole. Let's go. Encouraging Conrad. <laughs> We're here. We're here, Conrad. Okay. You can stop now. Okay. All right. Here's my question, and it always goes without notice whatsoever to Philip. It's just a simple question. Guess, really. happy for, you can send to the guest first if you want to. No, 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 no. It's got to be you. <laughs> Thanks. What? It's a very simple question. What makes the perfect Doctor Who companion? Oh dear, um, female in a short skirt? No, no, that's the dad's answer. That's what John Nathan's really thought. Um, okay, perfect dodgy companion. I think it's changed. I actually, it's interesting. In some ways, it, it's it's become again what it started. So I think the perfect Doctor Who companion was Barbara. Originally, I think you had because you had an older Doctor. Um, I think Susan was supposed to be a way of seeing the universe, but she just didn't work. I think, unfortunately, for whatever reason, the writers didn't know how to write for her, so she wasn't the perfect companion. I think Barbara was the perfect companion. She was the point of view the audience had. She was skeptical but caring. She was inquisitive, and she trusted the Doctor. And in the end, just wanted to be there and just enjoyed life. And I think for a long time they lost what the perfect companion looked like and really rediscovered again, I think with, oh, I'm going to through, someone's with Rose. Rose was again created to be someone who actually wasn't equal to the Doctor, who gave the Doctor what's for. Um, I think Ace was a bit of a tr an attempt to be that sort of person, but she was still a child. And I guess I guess Ace and Rose wasn't much different in age, but. Rose was able to stand up for herself a bit more than Ace was. The, the doctor wasn't trying to manipulate her and make her terrified. 
So for me, Perfect Companion, someone who trusts the Doctor, who loves the adventure, who is confident and strong in their own right, um, inquisitive, and occasionally just needs to be rescued, but also can do the rescuing. So those are the sort of qualities off the top of my head I'd be looking for. And I think we have had lots of them through the way, and some have been better written than others. Some, some like Elizabeth Sladen, I, I think Sarah Jane wouldn't have been anything like as good as she would have would be without an actress like Elizabeth Sladen making every line sing and taking plain lines and making them exciting. Um, I think Graham did the same thing in the Jodie Whittaker era. Graham was spectacular with every line that he had. And no matter how bad the material was, you noticed him. Um, but then other characters have been lucky just to have some interesting things. But often it depends on the writer. I mean, you know, Leela, amazing character on paper, works so well with, you know, for the first three stories, four, first four stories in particular. And then she just became a generic, you know, we'll just kind of make a scream, which Louise fought against. And so I think saved the character in some parts. Um, can I just say, I love all the companions. And then, you know, in, in terms of audio, I mean, I think, you know, you know, Charlie's my favorite companion on audio and always has been. I think Charlie was just the perfect character for the Doctor. She just created so well for Paul McGann, brilliantly played by an amazing actress in India. Um, she had compassion and sympathy and just a joy of life. And I, I wanted to be there with her. So I think a good companion you want to be with, with them and spend time with them. Conrad, what, do you, what are your thoughts on that? I don't think I can beat that, but I think the only thing I'd add to that, I think, is is because my, my I think like you hit a lot of the points of my, some of my favourite companions. Like I do genuinely, especially in classic era, love them all. For me, po high points are just sort of like Barbara, uh, Sarah Jane, obviously uh, Ace. I, I really love, and in the new series, Rose. And I would also just on an, in an unbiased way also say Charlie. I, I've always said that. I think she, it's. There's something about all of those people. Now, obviously, it's the actors who bring have brought those actors so much to life. But I think another quality I'd add to it is sort of a flexibility and adaptability with not only the Doctor, but if but the lead man you're playing with. You need to be, in both cases, you need, need to be able to understand, to step back when they're having a big, and let them have a big moment or know when to challenge them or know when to say, no, Doctor, you're being an idiot. We're supposed to be doing this or knowing when to sort of stand back and look pretty and ask questions. Um, and it actually, that counts for both on screen and off screen because there's a, as maybe we'll get into, there's a, there's an awful lot of blur between those things. So I'd say everything Philip said, and I'd say flexibility and adaptability as well. Yeah, I, I agree with what you said too, Philip. Uh, particularly with Barbara, but I would also add Ian to that because he, I, I think he balances um, what the companion can be for for different people. Because Ian was was the was the action man; he was designed that way. Barbara was the compassionate person. Um, so I think, yeah, they they were always my favourite of the of the first Doctor era. Those two. I mean, I, I love Ian. I love Ian. I love Ian as well. But I think Ian often opposes the Doctor. It's Barbara's job to be the go-between between the two of them and to bring them back together again. So yeah. But I mean, yeah. He, for plot, plot-wise, he's great. I mean, there's, there's not actually there's not a TV companion I don't like. So even Dodo, I think, he, I think even Dodo, who gets, gets the worst stick of anyone, um, 
I can actually see some great qualities in her. And I think in the gunfighters, she's amazing. I was going to say, the, gunfighters is yeah, top of the list she's for Dodo. Yeah. In, the, in the gunfighters. Yeah. Um, just roughly, roughly, roughly treated. And there's only a couple of audio companions I just don't think works. And yeah, I mean, well, one of the non-big finished companions we talked about last night, which will come up sometime. Um, yeah, but on the whole, yeah, I, I, on the whole, they're really well written by across the board because people know what we need, but some, some are able to carry a bit more with them. And that's usually through either good writing or both good writing and good performances. Some, some performers can just get themselves up even with, with ordinary writing. But some companions just have amazing writing and amazing performances, and then they just glow. I mean, you know, Catherine Tate's another one. I mean, you know, she's just amazing what she she can do too, and a very different sort of companion to what we were getting with Rose and Rose and um, Martha to start off with. It's amazing how they got it so right with Barbara Wright and and, the, and Jacqueline Hill. It's like, how could you get pretty much the best companion? One of the arguably the best. If someone says Barbara's the best companion. You kind of can't really argue if you don't, even if you don't agree. But how to get that so, in 60 years, how to get it so absolutely right on the first go? That's sort yeah. of astonishing how they did that. Yeah. And, 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 and obviously just, viewed as being, I mean, you know, she's a mate, you know, um, Jacqueline Hill. Um, you know, she's just happened to be the best friend of the producer who said, I think Jackie would be good for this. <laughs> And, you know, she didn't have to go through the whole audition process that other people went through, but just, you know, sort of pulled out through nepotism, um, still paid half of what um, William Russell was paid, mind you. Um, you know, being a woman, why, why would you pay the same as William Russell? Um, but yeah, carries carries so much of the show for those early years, and it's just the, the high point for, for two years. Perhaps, perhaps my question, what makes the perfect companion, makes you think too much about looking for one or two of but there are so many over over the years and it's the different relationships between the different characters that make magic like you you referred to um sarah jane smith but skipped over joe grant so there's there's sarah jane is interesting because she crossed over between the more human third doctor and the more alien fourth doctor so there's that crossover there but throughout the joe grant years we had this really warm caring relationship it was it was very human whereas you, then you go to the fourth doctor romani you've got that almost alien relationship uh, which is a different dynamic once again but then romana decides to go and regenerate and it becomes a lot more friendly for oh for more reasons than one i guess um but yeah there are so many different dynamics uh, for 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 the different doctors' personalities as well. I mean, think about Colin Baker and his personality, how he was when he first regenerated, very cold, very snappy. And then his companions throughout his time, especially Big Finish, and we, we haven't mentioned uh, Evelyn yet. She's probably my favourite Big, uh, Big Finish companion. Um, she brought something that really softened the, the Sixth Doctor to the point where he's... Like he was starting to soften, you could tell on television in Mysterious Planet, when he, he and Perry were really softening from that previous season. Um, but by the time Evelyn came along, softened him right up, and then he was a different person almost within that one regeneration. He was several different people. So very interesting the way these companions can, can even soften a Doctor. 
And it might have even happened with Capaldi as well. He started off very hard and he, he kind of softened and was a different person again with Bill at the end. And and uh, we got the, all these different variations of the same Doctor. Don't know what you guys think of that. Yeah, I, I think just on your earlier point, I think in part what we like in people is often what we look for in the companion. So for I think Joe I think I do think Joe and the third doctor were lovely together and I still cry at the green death when she leaves. But it was very much a she was a in a being protected relationship. He was there to protect and look after her and, and that which I think worked well. I mean I think I probably preferred Liz Shortly, to be honest, because Liz was smart, intelligent, strong willed, didn't need saving, where Joe did need that protection. And I think naturally John Pertwee gives that sort of protection and that, that hug. But why I'm more attracted to Sarah Jane Smith is because she was a lot feistier and strong and independent, which is, if, if I'm looking for who do I want my daughters to, be, daughters to be, I want them to be like Sarah Jane more than Joe Grant. Now, do I love Joe Grant's companion? Yes. Do I think you know, I love Kenny Manning? I do. Um, but in terms of who do I want my daughters to be, I'd like them to be more like Sarah Jane or I'd like them to be more like Rose. So I guess I'm, I'm looking in terms of what are the characteristics I want to see in my daughters? And so those are the sort of like things, are the things that appeal to me the most. But yeah, you are right. The, 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 the interplay with Doctor and Companion is really important. And, and yeah, you think of Doctors, you think of the Companion with them. Um, so with the first Doctor, I think you do think of Ian Barbara. Like, I do think they come as a set. Um, you know, second Doctor's Jamie, third Doctor's Joe, fourth Doctor, probably Sarah Jane. Um, but then he's, yeah, he actually has a huge bag, doesn't he? Um, Tegan for the fifth. Um, Perry for the sixth, um, Ace for the seventh. So they've all got their sets that go together. Um, and that's, yes, it, they certainly do help define who the Doctor is. And I think that's a good point, Dwayne, you said about that, you know, the, the, obviously the Doctor change of, can change, so they're a completely different person from one to the next. But like you said, he also changes, or she, he or she also changes throughout their run. And also they change scene by scene, or even mid-scene they'll change. So it's like loyalty i'd add to that because you have to love that person or at least be loyal to them to deal with that level of bs on a sort of, you know just them being so changeable there's gonna be something at the core you believe in because they can be a nightmare one minute and your best friend the next so yeah yeah loyalty i'd add to that absolutely true anything left that we haven't covered on companions or oh, there's tons we've left that we haven't covered but yeah conrad a great outfit a weird outfit a uniform you know if you do it you're rocking a uniform and you want to wear that for three years you rock that if you're fancying it you know if you're from the victorian era and you want to have a go at mini skirt you crack on you know just wear some even if you want your dumb maths badge, math badge kilt just wear some wear some mad stuff you've got the tardis wardrobe you're in time and space we wear what you freaking like so yeah a, a, a crazy kooky sometimes sexy costume I was going you to say to yes. Know what, what we got up to in that, that, that TARDIS wardrobe room? You don't want to know. The yeah, I want, to, I want to know what you were wearing later. <laughs> don't want to know. <laughs> yeah, because the Doctor doesn't doesn't use that wardrobe too much. Although he may do soon, judging by the pictures that we've seen. Eh? Mm. So that could be interesting. An interesting change of direction. All right. I think on that note, did you want to say something else, Conrad? No, I'm good. I'm just really excited to have done a rabbit hole. I'm thrilled. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> awesome all right well let's crawl up out of the rabbit hole and before we uh, talk to you further uh, let's 
throw in the trailer for The Creed of the Cromen, because as I said, in January 2024, it will be 20 years since that story has been released. Doctor Who, The Creed of the Cromon. I will not speak. I will not say what I've seen. I ask only that you don't harm Lyda. Lyda, captured. Median 5. Selected at induction for reproductive reserve. Status confirmed. Ingested first and second grade Q-elixir. Hybridization experiment promising. Advanced to status Q3. So I wonder where we are. Well, the landscape seems the same as we saw earlier. Yeah, dry and dusty. Why wouldn't the croaker let us through? What's to hide? There must be life somewhere. There must be technological development. The croaker seemed interested in the TARDIS. We can worry about his interest when we find the old girl. I I was inducted, taken with Lyda to Alphasphere. There were hundreds of us. We were graded, assessed for work and usefulness, divided into groups. Everyone was herded away until only Lyda and I were left. Are the Crumman native to this zone? No, they're not like us. You will all remain standing. You will wait for the return of the patrol ship. You will be taken to the Alpha Sphere for interrogation and induction. And if we refuse? You have zero choice in the matter. Ingested final expansion, Lixia. Consumption successful. End of requested information. We're not your enemy, Garys. Please believe that. Um, I'm not going to reintroduce Conrad. We've been stuck with him for the whole show so far because he wanted to come into the rabbit hole, which has been great to have you so far. Um, I want to take you back, back to Titanic. No, uh, let's go back to wh- where were you born? Where did you grow up? Let's give, tell us a bit about your early years, Conrad. Yeah, I was born um, in a place called Hawley, which is near London, just outside London. But I grew up in big inverted commas um, in the West Country um, in a little city called Wells. And it's only a city because it's got a cathedral in it. But basically, it's one of those, you know, chocolate boxy, Miss Marpley kind of, you know, morning vicar, you know, Mr. Bun the Baker, Mrs. Sparks, the electrician's wife, you know, a nice little cosy chocolate box, English, what would be a town, but is a, is a city and i kind of i grew up there and um very very happy you know i just i think i had a really happy childhood and a lot of it was to do with the fact i had a really i I was very into doctor who and star wars and batman and cartoons and all that kind of stuff and i've just had a very i've always had like a really sort of strong relationship a very healthy relationship with my fantasy life and later on that so i think when things started coming along later that I was in or got involved in, it was always sort of fairly natural to me that there was this two-way door. I always sort of assumed that I didn't, I never, I never really kind of got the, got a grip between the separation of reality and fantasy. So yeah, but yeah, I had a very, very, very happy upbringing. Doc, and Doctor Who was a big part of that, I think. Do you feel you've missed out on your creative side by not having this tortured childhood that you needed to to, to be really creative and explore yourself? No, that came later. The the, the 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 torture, despair, and all of that. Don't worry, I had my fair share, plenty of that in adult, adult life. But I was a relatively happy childhood, thank goodness. I think it's part of um. You mentioned before your age. Um, I've been to a lot of twenty first and fiftieths in the last twelve months or so. And it's interesting. This speech is the twenty first are always about hope and what the future holds, and by the fifties is all about well, we've managed to get to this point. Aren't we lucky we've survived? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, you wake up in the morning, check your pulse, go. Yeah, we're good. It's all good. Um, 
you mentioned before you love Doctor Who. When did you decide that you were going to be an actor? When, when, did, when did the whole creative side take hold and how? Yeah, I was in, it was when I was at a, when I was actually really little and I had to go from, I think, what was infants to junior school, which had been like six to seven. The reason I didn't want to go to junior school is because they did plays and I thought that was really scary. And then the first time they did a play, like a nativity or something, they're like, who wants to be in the chorus? And I was like, put my hand up because I was like, great, I can hide in the background. And they just went along and went, mm, no, we need lead, the lead person in, you know, like you're cute. Come to, come to the front. You're, you're the lead person. I was like, having said I didn't want to be in it at all and be in the chorus, they just shoved me out the front. And I had a go at that and I quite liked it. But then um, when I went to, when I was a teenager and I went to comprehensive school, we had a really, really excellent drama teacher. Or like a, one of those teachers that really made a difference and really made it called Mr. Wild. What a great name, Mr. Wild. Um, and you can actually see Mr. Wild in the film Hot Fuzz, which was all filmed, the Simon Pegg uh, movie. And it was all filmed around Wells, where I grew up. And there's a little, and because um, Edgar Wright, now I think about it, he was two years below me in school. So he had the same teachers and all that kind of stuff. So Mr. Wild was one of those drama teachers who just was brilliant and I used to spend all of my lunch breaks and after school larking about with my mates in the drama thing and we kind of ran the drama thing and it really it 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 allowed me to kind of just play get through school and deal with all that the school stuff I I kind of was probably a bit of a late developer in and I was able to just play and sort of have a bit of an extended childhood and so at school I was really I got through school pretty well and, you know, especially like being gay as well, you've all got that to deal with. But actually, I felt very happy and protected because I was like, we were like, come on, guys, let's paint a set. Let's do that. You're probably really obnoxious. But we we're always like, come on, guys, let's put on a show. And that was us all through school. But at the same time, Mr. Wild was really strict. He was terrifying. Like everyone was terrified of him. I wasn't because we were doing drama. So it was good. But he... I didn't really realise until I did stuff professionally later that he was actually teaching us the discipline is not all larking about and fun, or rather the more fun and creativity you want, the the more rigid your boundaries, the more professional you've got to be, the more on time you've got to be, you don't piss about. It's very, very... So he was brilliant. So I think that's that really instilled it in me. And then when I, by the time I kind of got to late teens, you know, you're trying to be all serious and sensible. So I kind of, I packed it in uh, and then sort of went off and did other stuff, went to university and stuff. Did you have any musical influences um, or yeah. tastes? Yeah, it's funny. My t I talk about my childhood being very happy and very formative. And I think if you'd have asked me when I was a kid or at school, what's your favourite programme, film and music? I would have said Doctor Who, Star Wars and Kate Bush. And if you ask me now, what's your favourite programme, film and music? You know, it's the same. Um, and it, like, it's I'm just lucky that those things which could have lasted three or five years just happened to have lasted decades. Well, not happened. They're all really excellent. Um, so yeah, they're my key tastes. They always have been, and I don't think I've ever changed them. I mean, maybe that makes me very limited or whatever, but I just think I have phenomenally good taste at an early age. Well, it's funny because I, I have always been since childhood, Doctor Who, Star Wars, ABBA. And it would still, still hasn't changed in 50 years. Amazing. I'm hoping to see the the, the show, the ABBA, show uh, later this year because brendan jones from fight through entirety is coming over to the uk and i think he's going so i might try and see if i can join him and go to that i'm planning to fly over there just to see it i've had a friend go over and see it three times come from australia three times to go see it so yes it's it's on my um bucket list hopefully next year that's my plan um you just mentioned before in terms of your, your sexuality in terms of being in high school um in in terms of what at what point did you 
did you understand that you were gay and what influence did that play in terms of your loves of Doctor Who or theatre, etc.? Was that a major influence? There's some big questions right there. Like, I think in terms of when I had a sense of what my sexuality actually was, it's the same time as everyone else's, like normal development, 12, you know, between 11, 13, 14, you're kind of going, you know, you kind of know what's going on. Um, so that's when I had a wet, you know, I, I had my sexuality the same as time as everyone else. But like everybody else, I can track back from when I was tiny and I can see my attitudes towards gender, like men and women and things, the things I liked. It's it's kind of amazing how early that's formed and and it and it, it comes at you in a different way. But there's just like this sounds so freaking corny, but you know how it's such a a um a cliche. They're like oh, gay men like Wizard of Oz and Judy Garland and all that kind of stuff. It's like yeah, it is a cliche. But when I was like three or four, when I saw that, I was like something about that just beams so certain things i also sort of like gayness and campness and that kind of stuff is like a frequency that only some people can kind of hear or get and some things like the wizard of all just beam straight in there it's like i could leave my home and go off to a big colorful technicolor world with my friends something about this speaks to me and there are cert- but there are certain certainly formative influences and i've always said you can see like there's a batman thing over there Batman 66, that was incredibly formative. I won't go too far into that, but uh, I've, I've actually been quite curious about, I'm very curious about stuff like sexuality and psychology. So I've actually gone back and really tried to retrace where all these these influences came from. That was certainly a thing where it wasn't, I'm, I'm understanding this in a sexual way, because I was six or seven, but something about that like made sense in my brain and continued to make sense. And it was often like the villains, like this, but this like f- bunch of this, f- this freak show of these weirdos. I'm like, yeah, I like you lot. You know, it's like, there's something about you. I think it's because quite quickly you realize that you're different. And then the adult world that's being presented to you is not, isn't quite something about it doesn't ring true. So I think gay and queer people have a sense of the uncanny or what's behind that curtain or that there's something else going on that's that that the adult world isn't quite right which i think is why huge generalization i think gay and queer people are often attacked or often very attracted to sort of what appear to be frivolous or surface or artificial things is because they have an innate sense of spotting what's real or what's behind a sort of curtain i think that's a that's a key thing also, when I was, I think when I was nine, Flash Gordon came out in 1980. And if you see Flash Gordon, you're going to come out knowing which side you're on. Because that is a very, there's something, for, there's something for everybody in that film. You know what I'm talking about. I do know what you're talking all about. All the straight boys are thinking, hmm, Princess Aura. And all the, all the, you know, anyone who likes men is thinking, hmm, Sam Jones and other shorts. That film is a sorter. If you're a kid or if you're not sure about your sexuality, pop on Flash Gordon 1980 and you'll be very clear by the end of it. Now, early on, I mean, part of the reason why I'm racist, early on you talk about the, the gay kid in the, in the drama room. Were you out and comfortable as, in, in school or was it still something that was hidden? Did, no, did it's, your friends it was, know? no, it's a totally different era. So I was, you know, while I was sort of just being me, you know, just like a just sort of happy, <laughs> happy kid. Um, it wasn't really, I think there was one kid who was out at school. And he obviously had a ho- horrible time of it. I was still kind of a bit unsure. It was a different time. And also it was it was the 80s. And 
I mean, any discussion of being gay was just linked to AIDS, where you had these terrifying adverts coming out. So no, I, I didn't actually come out, come out until I was like 21 or something when I went to university. And that seems very, very late now, maybe. But back then, it was sort of appropriate. Like I said, I sort of had an extended childhood and didn't really... I think, you know, I did, I started to experiment and stuff happened, you know, mid-teens, I started to to get a bit of action here and there, but um, I didn't really come out now until I went to university. Okay. Do you think your sexuality has played a part in terms of career choice and where you've headed? As much as anyone else's. Yeah. Um, okay. You know, like I can ask a straight person, like what, what being about heterosexual led you to being a bank manager? You know, like it's very hard, it's kind of hard to, to separate, but um, I think, it, you know, there is a long tradition of, you know, gay people being very artistic or very creative. I don't know why that is. We're drawn to, like I said, it's this part of that explanation is I think, oh yeah, we know how to play in a fantasy world. We know what we can see behind the curtain. We, we, the, the game's up. We know this is one big bloody play and it isn't real. Whereas I think if you're straight, it's much easier to accept, you know, the, the, the world that's being presented to you, you know, men, women, marriage, kids, da, da, da. It's a very, it's very congruent with your parents' life, their, your grandparents' life, your life. And so I think it, I think there's less need to look outside that structure. Whereas I think if you're you're queer, pretty you you learn you learn pretty quick. And also you've got to lie and hide, and you've got to learn all kinds of skills. Like in 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 class, you've got to learn how to be invisible. If if some subject comes up about being gay, you just learn how to sort of shimmer out and be invisible, or you learn how to adapt how you talk or modulate your voice or, or your wrist. You know, like you have you learn very quickly how to be a bit of a I also like being gay is like a superpower. You you know, it's a bit of a curse. It's a bit of a blessing, but you do learn certain modes. You learn very at a very young age that you have to adapt. You can't just be the person people want you to be. You've got to have alter egos and fantasy lives and you have to be. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think my sexuality probably is involved in, in my creativity to that respect. Cause I think gay people know they've been play acting for a long time. They've had to. So so after school, you go to university, or how how do you get into acting from there? What 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 is your plan for life? What was your ten year plan when you left school? Okay, I'm I'm sort of in my early twenties, you know, in the nineties, so I haven't got a clue what's going on. Um, but I went to university. I did communications, which now is quite common, but then it was quite an unusual hybrid of like psychology, sociology, with also film studies and TV studies and all that jazz. Moved to London. Um, and my first proper job was, I didn't have any plan, but I moved to London and my first proper, proper job is I, I worked for 20th Century Fox. And as, as I'll probably sort of will keep coming up as a bit of a running theme, as I've, I've sort of realised, is that I'm incredibly lucky. I don't know why cool stuff just seems to happen to me without me really trying too hard. So that's nice. Um, I was on the, I was, I was working in a shop. I was working at Harrods. It was ridiculous. Um, but one of the suppliers phoned me up one time and we were just chatting and he went, um, oh, did you see that Princess Diana interview on Panorama, the big Princess Di interview? And I was like, no, I was watching this other thing, this new show called The X-Files, which I really love. And he's like, oh, I've got a friend who's, who's involved in that. And I just went, oh, he hasn't got any jobs, has he? Half joking. And he went, yeah, I think he has actually. I'll put you in touch. And it turned out that the 20th Century Fox was were opening an office in Soho Square to do all the licensing and merchandising. So I did a bit of research on the early internet. I had to use my dad's internet to look up X Files merchandise. And I, I, I sort of I found a cut. I saw a couple of really cool uh, light up X watch by a company called Wesco, who I think did Doctor Who clocks and watches. 
And in the interview, he was like, do you know about the X-Files? And I was like, genuinely, I do. I know all about the X-Files. And I said, yeah, I've very cool merchandise. I love this watch. And this guy went, I designed it. I designed it. And I think I had the job. So it's one of those little, see, I say I'm lucky, but actually that's a little bit of research and a little bit of making your own luck. But so I worked at 20th Century Fox in my early 20s, which was a dream come true. We worked on The Simpsons, Buffy, X-Files. And it was around the time stuff like Baz Luhrmann, like Romeo and Juliet, Titanic. You know, it was it was amazing. I mean, I was working in Soho Square and basically all day long, I was just playing with toys and approving Simpsons merchandise and going to movie premieres down the road. It was like amazing. I've got to tell you this ridiculous story because this, this, this shows you how ridiculous it was. Like you always had to keep a tux on the on the coat stand because if there was the someone like someone they'd all be like oh there's tickets tonight there's spare tickets to a premiere down the road you're like tucked up you're down the road but i remember one time it was around the time of the star wars re-releases you know when they did the yep. special editions whatever you call them at the cinema and uh the pr guy came to me in a massive panic and he had two big trunks and he was like you know to go Connor, you've got to help me you've got to help me you like star wars and i was like yeah and he said there's a premiere tonight george lucas is coming there's the original darth vader costume and there's a replica one and I've got them mixed up and I don't know which is which. Can you help me? And he's George, George Lucas is coming. There's a big walk down with stormtroopers. George, you've got to help me. And I was like, okay, wait, wait, I got this. And I looked and I sort of circled these box. I picked up the helmets and did this. And I was just like, mm. I was like, yeah, definitely, definitely that one. He's like, thank God you're a lifesaver and ran off. I was like, I had no idea. I just wanted him to have an easy time. I'm like, George Lucas is going to be too busy. Nobody cares. But like, that's the level of crazy. Very, very fun. But then one day, I was, someone said, oh, do you want to see the films we've got, Fox has got coming up for the next couple of years? And I was like, sure. And I li- looked through this, uh, flicked through this, this spreadsheet. And I was like, oh, you know, Aliens, new Aliens movie. Oh, right, a new animated movie, cool. And then as the years went by, the 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 slots, the film's title stopped happening. And then it was just like Valentine's Day, chick flick, summer, animated film, Christmas, some comedy. And I and I knew, you know, you don't work for a big Rupert Murdoch company without knowing you're just there to make money. But seeing it so boldly that like these people don't care about films at all. They've got no idea. They just and I think just seeing it just really made me very disillusioned. And it was just a moment where I was like, and I, and I think in a corporate environment, I don't think I'd last that long anyway. So I probably lasted three years, and I was like. I hate this. I hate this. I now hate this job. And I, I just need to go somewhere else. So basically I I did a bit of soul searching and then I buggered off to drama school. Um quite late, lots of late twenties or something. Yeah, I went off to went off to drama school uh, for two years. So that's how I got there. So what was that experience like? Yeah, it depends which drama school you went to. I went to a place called the Poor School. It's not that well known. It was near near King's Cross. It was known for being very rough and ready. It churned out a lot of EastEnders. I think um, Jessie Wallace, if that's still her name, uh, she went like she was the year above me. There were lo- a load of EastEnders around. It, it kind of t- turned out kind of the reputation was for very hard working actors because it was incredibly tough. It was probably the the hard, the toughest I've worked, I think. Two solid years. Thirty-six of us started. Sixteen of us made it. It was wow. you're, you're basically you're learning. And again, this is what I was talking about the, the discipline you learn from school. You just like you're never you're like you're never late. You're never ill. If you if you're thinking of being ill, I want to speak to the who's in charge of the hospital bed you're in. Like you can't do that on stage. You can't be late. You can't be ill. So you're not going to be. And so it was really and it was very strict. And it, the guy who ran it was a brilliant, nasty alcoholic. And so, you know, you got swore at, shouted at. It was hideous. Um, but it was also the most wonderful experience. So it was very tough. So it was, I was really kind of grateful for that 
and I, and I was able to deal with it. So I, I did that for two years and it was, it was fantastic. And then I came out of that in my early thirties with a completely blank CV. And I'm like, geez, I'm 30. And my, you know, cause I'd start, I'd rechange career and I had a, an empty CV and I had to start from scratch doing plays. I only really wanted to do theater. That's all I ever really wanted to do. And so you're doing like, like things for like no money above a pub, you know, new right, cl- the classic stuff. And then just sort of built up as you do. And, and you, so, you know, you, 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 your next job's a bit better then your next job's a bit better. And then someone rehires you and then you get an agent and then you, then it kind of builds up. Um, I mean, yeah. And then I think my first professional job, what I would call professional, um, was a tour of Abigail's party. It was the 25th anniversary tour of Abigail's party at Hampstead theater. And I was understudying, but I was covering this wonderful guy called Stefan Rodri. He's an amazing actor. And what a lovely guy. He said, um, I think I might be feeling a cold coming on that might be coming on on Monday if you uh, want to go on. I was like, oh, what a shame. I hope you feel better after Monday. So I knew I was going to get to, I said, bless him. He just, he just sort of took a dive and let me have a night on stage. And it was amazing. And that that's like, that, that does something different to you when you're in a proper production of something, big audience in a proper theater and you're getting a big laugh, that kind of stuff is like, oh, oh, I like this. And playing, I played the part of Tony and playing my wife was one little unknown called Lizzie Hopley. Whatever happened to her? I always keep meaning to ask. Yes, I don't know what happened to her. Yeah. So that was, and that, and that kind of, you know, that put, I don't know, then things started to take off and, you know, obviously I've been friends with Lizzie ever since. So, and and, and then from then, yeah, then I'm looking for like good, proper stuff. And then then you're up a level and you just have to drag yourself up a level each time. Um. And yeah, and, and basically, I think uh, so. I did. I trained for two years, and I acted for ten years, uh, and and it was brilliant. It was really hard work. I really, enjoy, I really loved it because I'd made it myself. You know, there's a total blank CV, and then you know, you get into the back of the taxi one day, and the guy goes, "Oh, what do you do?" And you're like, "Oh, I suppose I'm an actor." And then, then you are, and just because you say you are, you kind of create it, and then you are. And I did lots of theatre. I did lots of Shakespeare. I did. Lots of physical theatre. There was a sort of phase I went through doing a lot of very, very f- lot of work with amazing physical theatre companies like Frantic Assembly and Punch Drunk and Adventures in Motion Pictures. And I loved all that stuff. And then a very big Shakespeare phase, which I, I loved, which culminated in in doing a, a Romeo and Juliet at the Globe, which was just like, wow. if you want to do theatre and if you've always liked Shakespeare, yeah. and I remember yeah. Mr. Wilde took me to see my first Shakespeare play, you know, and so like, if you want, if you like acting and you like theatre, and then you find yourself at the Globe, you know, on your own on stage, two thousand people, and they call it the Globe because it's a circle. And and when you're on stage, there's people as high up as you can see, as far left as you can see, as far right as you can see, and then you look down and there's people like that, you know, looking looking up at you. So so all the world's a stage, and it was like, you know, a laugh, getting a laugh or response in that big wooden space. That's a that's a very nice feeling. And we toured it all, all around Europe, all these Shakespeare festivals. And that was a real highlight. But I think that slightly scratched an itch in me because nothing was ever the same after that. I did. I was still working, still getting parts. But I'm, I was like, something's not here. And I think, really, really honestly, I, I think part, part of me was just like, I, I can't I can't beat that. It, it, in my Something in my heart just was like, after that, I wasn't really... So, I don't know. My, my heart wasn't in it 
heart wasn't as in it as much after that and you can't do acting if your heart's not in it so yeah. uh, so. I saw I saw 12th Night at the Globe and it was just the most amazing experience and yeah as part of the audience it was an amazing experience so I can imagine being on stage must be an amazing buzz yeah, well, you're, you're another, another beauty of the globe is that it's sort of you're all there's no lighting in there. You're lit. Yeah. You're all lit by the same light, so that you can see them, they can see you. It's a very, very, very kind of two way thing. So it's it's not so removed, and you know you're always talking to the audience. Or if there's a plane in the sky, you refer to it. It's it's you know it's brilliant. If they if they're being rained on, you're being rained on. It's all it's brilliant. All one. So in yeah. two thousand three February, you went and recorded your first Big Finish. So how did you come to work for Big Finish? Yeah, through so through a series of again happy accidents and me not pushing too far. I think socially, I in the early two thousands, I met Clayton Hickman, um, and obviously he was the ed- editor of Doc Two magazine. Um, we were chatting, and he was just like, "Oh, I'm going to um, um, a convention in Manchester, Monopticon," and he was like, "Oh, you should come." And I was just like, "Okay," and then I I, I went, and when I arrived, he was like, "Oh, you came?" I was like, "Yeah, you said I should, so I'm here." Um, and then I just sort of. Um, met lots of people and it was all good and then they were looking for a new assistant editor and I think because I'd, I'd socialized with people and had a nice time and you know I had the experience at Fox looking after brands and stuff like that so basically I worked on Doctor Who magazine for six months and the acting work was there because this is 2003 so this is quite early this is I'd only been out of drama school a couple of years and it, I started to get age get auditions and stuff so traveling from Tunbridge Wells just wasn't working so I only lasted in Doctor Who magazine for six months um and then I think as a bit of a leaving present, some dark deal was done at the Fitzroy Tavern. And I think they just chucked me a day on a Peter Davison audio, which is Omega, which I was just, I was like, this is, this is amazing. You know, this is, this again, this is early on, on in my career, but I was like, I'm going to be in Doctor Who for a day. And that's just, that's just amazing. And I didn't have to try or push or, you know, I, I'm not very ambitious in that way like I'm, I'm determined to something i want but i'm not i don't i'm not looking to get places or make people do things or, or try and get in there i've never been like that um so it just landed in my lap and i was like how jolly i'm in dog two for a day so i really i thought i'm going to make this count so i hired a voice to a tutor from my drama school there's a direct friend i know and i i just worked and worked and worked and worked on all of that, even though it was just a one day in on audio, but I was like, I want this to be as good as I can make it at the time. And I'd never recorded an audio before, so I had to try and make that up as well. Um, and just I had a great day. You know, Peter Davison was there. Hugo Myatt, who was in a kid's TV show called Nightmare over here. Incredible. He was in my first scene. Um, and I was lucky because the character I played got to be possessed, got to, he got his hand lasered off. I had to play a young Rassilon you know, be possessed by Omega, all this kind of stuff. So as an episode to be in, it was a good one because I got to do loads of stuff. And then I can't remember when it was, but some months later, I got a phone call from Gary saying, hey, we're looking for a new male companion for the eighth Doctor, Paul McGann. Would you like to do it? And, you know, I said, yes, please. And then I put the phone down and I jumped and uh, jumped up and down on my bed for about 10 minutes going, hooray, hooray, hooray. Um, and then, yeah, that's what I got into. So it was actually only three months later because because oh, although your next story to come out was the greatest, which wouldn't come out till the anniversary um, in November, you actually f- recorded all the next season with Paul McGann from May in May, and you wouldn't actually record the greatest until September. So you actually had, you actually recorded all your stuff as 
in, in the May 1st for that next season before Zagreus had been recorded. So again, say that again. So we so we do we did recorded Zagreus after our first season because I can never remember when we did yes. that. Yes. So so you you recorded the Creed of Cromanon, history natural history of fear, which you must talk about Twilight yep. Kingdom, and I think Faith Stealer was that the four in that first? No, one? the Faith Stealer was the next one. I know that. Okay. Oh, so Twilight Twilight Kingdom oh, was the Twilight last one. was the last one. That's right. Because yeah, oh, those yeah. there's those four shirts, so you weren't in. That's right. No. Of course. So there was that four was... in that season, um, that. and they they were all recorded in the May. And then they wouldn't actually record Zagreus until September. Wow. So they, they, so you, they brought you back first. So in terms of companion, what, what were you expecting? What were you told? Yeah, I didn't know much at all. Um, I, oh gosh, I'm just, I'm just trying to piece it together. So Gary made that phone call. I think between then and recording, Clayton Hickman had said, oh, you should meet India and Paul was in a play in London It, I think, the Riverside in Hammersmith. He was in a play with Susanna Harker. And Clayton said, let's have a let's go out until you can meet uh, India. So I met India and, and we had a great we, we obviously clicked. We just clicked absolutely instantly. It was sort of I know it's a bit obnoxious. Actors are always like, oh, we're best friends. It's all great. Does anyone um, not like, click with because anyone not yeah, click with India, though? So, I mean, I, I've met India and like she was like best buddy within five minutes and That's everyone like, she was around, she's suddenly best buddies with. Yeah. India Fisher walks into a room or you hear her voice and you are in love with India Fisher. Yeah. It's just there's no option. There's just no option. Um, but we got on like really, really well. Like we, we met at the tube station and by the time we were at the theatre, we were sort of arm in arm. I remember the lights going down on the play and I said to her, like, God, even if I'm not in a play, I get really nervous. And she was like, you freak. And I was like, we've known each other five minutes. And I was like, this is going to be fine. And um, we met Paul. I met Paul very, very briefly, briefly at the end, but I don't think he knew that this was happening and we didn't really chat. And then it was really just dry. I think we got the scripts and then I was, Gary drove us down. It was me, India and Ian Farrington and just drove us down. And the only thing he said because we're not putting a voice effect on you on you i just want you to use your own voice that was the only direction i had or asked for um so i just had the, the words on the page to go from and then i was just chucked in the studio there was no big intro he just said oh you know i was have my scripts walked in he's like oh paul this is conrad but like, hiya um then natural history fear i, did, I think we record i think did we record that one first i'm gonna have to ask you uh I don't know which one we recorded, which order we recorded them in, but... Uh, uh, we recorded the natural... 11th and 12th of May. Yeah. And the Creed of Cromanon was... It was either just before or just after. 13th, 14th of May. You are right. Yes, you did. That's... Yeah, so I walk into the studio with just... I just said hello to Paul. So you, were, you weren't even your companion. You weren't even... Careers really no, that was my first. Uh, that was my first day. It was on Natural History for, for a couple of days, which was an amazing thing. But it was like very hard to establish a sense of our dynamic or my companion because we were all playing millions of different parts. But it was an amazing play to be in. Yeah, it's, actually, let's briefly talk about. It. So, Natural History of Fear is um, without giving spoilers for that one. All of you are playing several characters going over and over through what seems like generations of time. And there's a reason behind it all, which is all revealed at the very end, but none of you actually are yourselves. No. Um, it is the most disturbing. It's a great play. And if you haven't, yeah, people have ever listened to it, highly recommend it. It's really disturbing <laughs> um, what's going on there. But yeah, the, the issue there is, of course, that you know, your character is not your character. You're playing several roles. Yeah. Um, and, and yeah, 
very powerfully. So the first time you actually get to play who you are is the creed of Chroman. Yeah. Um, at, at what stage did you realize you weren't human? You're were going to be an alien. Was it, did Gary explain yeah. all that to you? No, I mean, I knew, I knew I wasn't going to be an alien. He told me that and, and I'd had the script. So I could see there was descriptions like, Oh, you've got an, he, Oh, he's got an exoskeleton. Or it's like, his eyes are like a cat's and Oh, he's changing color. I had as much clue as anybody else. I literally, Gary had said, you, you are an alien. I want you to use your own voice. And that is it. And that's all he told me. And that's all I asked for. I mean, I didn't, I, I didn't ask more questions, which probably now I would have done. Um, so I just had the script to go on. So yeah, I had natural history to go on. I was like, I still, I have no idea who I am from that. Um, and then it was Creed of the Cromwell. And it was a, it was a very, you know, natural history is an amazing, amazing play. And while it was very disorientating to do, um, it, I was aware it was something really incredible. And Paul loved it. He was so excited when that script turned up. And then it was Creed of the Cromwell, which is a bit like going from Caves of Androzani to Twin Dilemma. Doctor Who does this to you sometimes. Um, I was very excited to be in a... It's better than that. (laughs) Okay. You know, it's... uh, Yeah, it was a tricky one to start on. You know, it was... um, I was very glad glad to be in a... Actually, I've got to say one more thing about um, natural history. One vivid memory I have is someone had to come in and do a really difficult scene. He had to come in really breathlessly and just ask loads of questions, like millions and millions of questions, like he was... And we were t- talking over him. And it was really, really difficult. And we were also wondering, God, this dude, how's he going to do this? And he did it because he walked in and he was Sean Carlson. And it was on his first day. And we were all looking at him because there's the studio. The, the setup in Bristol was quite odd. It was like you weren't in booths. You were in four corners. You're in the same room, just in four corners with Gary sitting cross-legged on the floor. And he came in. And I remember when that scene came up, me, Paul, and you were just like, how's he going to do this? He's going to have to improvise all of these. He can't. It's not script. How's he going to do it? And he just came in and did it. And it was phenomenal. And I remember Gary saying he was the find of the week. And we we, we went to the pub afterwards. We all got on with him. But I just need to drop that in because Sean Carlson, we're still mates today. And I've got all the time in the world for him. But seeing him do that was that, you know, I'm learning about voice acting. And I saw him and I was like, I want to be him, like him, please. You know, we'll um, talk to Sean. You can go listen to that episode for people listening. Go listen to Sean. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Sean Carlson. He's amazing. Yeah, your interview was great. Great as well. Doctor Who. The Natural History of Fear. This is the voice of Light City. Attention. Welcome to your new workday. Today is Jubilee Day. Citizens may celebrate for one day without arrest or punishment. Happiness through acceptance. Welcome to your Jubilee Day. Welcome to your Jubilee. Do you worship? Do you go to church? Do you believe in God? How many gods are there? What's his name? What does he look like? Perhaps he's a woman. Or perhaps he has a beard. Perhaps a, a, a bearded woman. Or perhaps he's, he's many, many gods. Uh, a whole army of gods. Perhaps he's plotting to attack us now. To destroy us. A, a whole army of gods. Rampaging across a desert, a plateau, to kill us, to wipe us out. Would God do that? 
Is God fair? Does he love us? Does he hate us? Perhaps he's teasing us. Perhaps he's toying with us. Perhaps he's playing with us, playing with our minds. Perhaps we're all just part of one big experiment. Perhaps we're just toys. Perhaps we're all little toy figures that God is playing with. And sometimes he bites off our heads and sometimes he stamps on us and sometimes he throws his toys back in the box and he doesn't want to play with us anymore. He doesn't want us anymore. He wants to get rid of us. He wants to get rid of us, to throw us all away. Get rid of us. No, he loves us. He loves us, doesn't he? Doesn't he? It's not true. Perhaps doesn't love us. We all love each other. Perhaps that's the answer. But isn't that what we need? But then perhaps love is evil. Is it a sin to love? Is it a sin? Is it wrong? Is, is it wrong to love? To hate? Perhaps to hate is safer. Hmm? Or to feel nothing? Do we feel nothing? Do we feel nothing? Perhaps we feel nothing. Perhaps we just feel nothing. And if we don't speak, perhaps we But yeah, then, then it was Queen of the Common, and like I was excited that it was uh, it was Philip Martin, so I was like, well, this has got the Ring of Truth. Like, I've got, I'll be, comp- this is really nice to be able to say because I've only been able to say sort of promotional nice things about it at the time, sort of things in Doctor Who magazine. And to be honest, I'm also a Doctor Who fan, and I've got a brain in my head, and I know what a good Doctor Who story is like, and I know what a less good Doctor Who story is like. So I'm not a huge fan of Queen of the Common as a story; it's just not my kind of thing. But it was where a lot of the clues, my initial clues from Kerry's came about. And, you know, some, you know, you know, sometimes a part will leap off the page, as they say, he didn't literally lift like leap off the page at all. There were a lot of there was a lot of contradictory information or just information that was quite hard to pull together. Um, he was a monk and very religious, but then also really hot headed and anti-authority. He was that came from sort of an agriculture. There's a talk about him being a farmer and this stuff. And then someone else describes him as being sort of, oh, we consider him like royalty. And there was a lot of, you know, he was kind of, I, I took some of the clue from the fact he changed colour. So I thought, well, that tells you he's more prey than predator. So that told me to sort of, he's a bit on the back foot. He's a bit gentle. He's a bit weird. He's a bit, he's a bit unsure, but he's quite vulnerable. So I thought, I know that. I did try something once with the chameleon thing in that, quite early on in in Creed the Cromen, where I thought the doctor says some says a word and Kerry's isn't familiar with it and he just repeats the word as in what? And I thought, I'll do it like Paul does. I'll try and say it like Paul said it, like a slight chameleon way, like he's trying to do it. And I think Paul, he might have just been surprised at hearing someone do his voice. I didn't think I don't know if he thought I was taking the piss or what, but he just shot me this look and I thought I just panicked and was like, I'm never doing that again. I'm literally never doing that again. <laughs> um so I think I lost a bit of that. And I just I think I've got very, as you can tell already, like I've got very mixed feelings about it um, because it was one of the most wonderful times of my life, but also it was very tricky. It was, I, 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 we, the whole, the era was getting very experimental. It was very difficult. The reception of it was, we'll talk about that, was very difficult. And I sort of struggled a bit to try and fit in. And I sort of defy anyone not to struggle to join Paul McGann and India Fisher, who were such individually their voices are amazing their chemistry is i think one of the best chemistry it's like sylvester and mm, and Sophie. it's incredible and gary was deliberately saying you know we've got a successful season under our belt or a couple of seasons under our belt we're going to just mix things up and from zagreus onwards it was like whatever you think you're going to get we're going to give you the opposite 
and it was like very very challenging i was struggling i think to make that character fully work and and being part of that dynamic is really key because it's i think the lot the rationale was that charlie and uh, the doctor had one of the first proper love stories of any doctor and companion and you can't really you know carry that on so let's bring in a third wheel to sort of interrupt it and be a bit of a gooseberry and that's like a great idea but it's quite hard to be that person um to be the the, the scrappy do that's kind of you know I, I, you're a kid i hated scrappy do like no one like, go away you don't want a third person so it was it was honestly i'm not sort of saying boohoo me but it, it was one of the challenges to come in as a third person and not only in the characters but also the actors sort of interrupt the flow a bit and india and i got on incredibly well and i think that's it, it start it just changes the dynamic you know threes a crowd a little bit so i'm, I'm kenny smith the big finish says that i'm always too hard on myself and i'm always too hard on the character and my part in it so i've got to try and not do that so i'll put that aside so it, what i'm saying is i found it difficult but you know you learn and then you know scripts are good scripts are bad and and you find your own way Let's talk about the the fan reaction then, because I know personally speaking, I love the experimental stuff. I'm always into experimental. I'm up for experimental. Yes, I can think back to Creed of the Crumman and go, yeah, that was a difficult listen compared to the other stories of the season. But, you know, it always happens in Doctor Who. You'll get something that's a little bit more difficult than than something else. Did what what was the what was the feedback you were getting at the time from from fans was it a mix or was it was it was there more negative it was part of a whole tsunami of a reaction that started with Zagreus I think because it's it's we, we've got to remember that back then that was it was the newest Doctor Who ever when you were walking to the studio you were aware that the brand newest Doctor Who is on the words on the pages in my bag and we haven't said them yet so there was a real sense of the newness of it and the anticipation especially as there hadn't been a tv 30th thing particularly so the the weight i remember the expectation on zagreus was massive and when they pulled that massive u-turn like you know that gear change on that i think that rattled a lot of people and i think that carried on you know with the divergent universe and then throw, you know, like you're going to have Doctor Who with no TARDIS, no Daleks, no monsters, no time. And this lovely dynamic you want, we've now got, we're now changing that. So there was a lot of, was it Gallifrey Brace or Outpost Gallifrey, which was first back in the day? Outpost Gallifrey was first. Outpost Gallifrey. So I was already seeing, and I was part of Outpost Gallifrey. So I was already, I already saw the, a lot of the fan opinion generally at the time. And I was very much part of that. I was associated with being, very, you know, after Zagreus, there was that lovely two hand hander, and then we were into this new thing. So I was just in the mix. And so a lot of people criticized the whole thing. And then a lot of people really criticized me, the character, and also me, the way I did it. Um, and it was really rough. It was brutal. Like, I'd, you know, I'd done some theater and I, I kind of knew if you read a review, it's like reading someone's diary. You know, if you read, if you open that thing and read it, you get what you get. And, um, you know, if your ego, if you believe the, the nice ones, you've also got to believe the bad ones. So I know what reviews are like, but it still doesn't change the fact that that level of 
you know, we know what Doctor Who fans are like. We know what we're like when we don't like something. You know, we savaged it to bits and I was savaged to bits and it really, really hurt. I can't lie. Um, I had to lie because we had to do conventions and and interviews and Doctor Who magazines and, you know, you know, you always put on the, the nice sunny side of it. No one wants to hear this stuff, which is right. It's really nice to get it out now. Are you, do I, are you sending me an invoice for this afterwards? Is this therapy? Um, <laughs> but yeah, yeah, there was a massive amount of criticism for the whole era and also for, for the character and also for me. And it absolutely hurt like hell. But on the other side, you got lots of really lovely stuff because you started to do signings, conventions, and you got re- letters, letters to my home address that no one gave out. That was that was a moment. I'm like, what the hell? Um, lovely stuff, like delightful stuff, because then you start to meet people. And it was gorgeous as well. But I can't lie, it was very, very mixed between like the most wonderful thing and the most hurtful stuff I've ever had in my life. Um, I, I do want to explore that a little bit more, just in terms of, I mean, thank you for your honesty. I mean, uh, yeah, I'm appreciating that. A, a couple of months before The Grace came out, it was announced that a new series was coming back with Russell T. Davis. Yeah. So I think so. I think that would have had an influence in terms of what was going on, and it would have no doubt freaked out Big Finish and Gary, because Gary had this big four, five-year plan, and yeah. suddenly the show's coming back. So we'll, we'll, we'll talk about the effect that's going to have after another season or two of, of what's going on in the new series. Mm. We talked before in the in the rabbit hole about what makes a good companion. And it's interesting that the companions who've had the hardest time, I think, have the roughest introductions. So mm. as much as I talk about liking Dodo, she had a shocking introduction because they didn't know what they were going to do with her. And so mm. every story, they do something different with her accent, with her voice. And I think yeah. the fact that the actress is able to pull that off still even though you know, every week she goes in with a new note about how to speak, how not to speak, how to what to wear, she somehow manages to pull it off. So we actually do see that in Gunfighters, we see she's a great actress. It could have worked if they just got it right. Um, I think Mel suffers from the same. You know, the way they introduced her was just not a good way to introduce a companion. So if you introduced poorly, you struggle throughout. Um, you're in the situation where you have a you're introduced in a, a season. Shirtso, which I adore, is an absolutely brilliant work. But that being said, polarized people. You know, already the Doctor Charlie relationship has polarized people. Can the Doctor be in love? So Grace wasn't what people expected. And I'm, I'm, we're talking to Gary about that soon. I'm really looking forward to that conversation um, to see to take his take on, on that. I've got some, um, I've got some, I've got some Zagreus stories. I've got some stuff to tell you about Zagreus. Okay. Well, we might include that in the Zagreus episode. <laughs> um, and they say you're introducing Creator Croman, which at the time it's, it's not clear that you will be a companion. And if I'm right, you kill your girlfriend. It's yeah. Part of, part of that, which once again, yeah. as, as a choice, um, as a choice for a new companions, not the best of choices, <laughs> probably to introduce a new companion with, you're then given, what is an absolutely brilliant story and you perform in it amazingly, the history, after history of fear, but that's not you, it's not the companion. And then you reappear in the Twilight Kingdom, which again, is a, I think it's a great story. That's Michael Keating, isn't it? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's an unusual way to introduce a character. And I think that a lot of the issue isn't with you, it isn't with the character, it's just the introduction wasn't clear. And so you get to the end of the season and we still don't have any idea really of who Keres is, what he's about, what his superpowers are. 
Um, and from the sounds of it, you're not really clear either. The, the scripts haven't been clear. I mean, Gary's using more experimental writers as well for that season. And so all those things combined, I think, made it very hard for you. Yeah, I mean, I'm keen to take my responsibility for this. And I think with a bit of maturity, if I was to start something like that now, I would just ask a lot more questions or just make bolder choices or not worry if Paul looked at me funny if I did it. You know, I'd be I'd, there's a lot. There was a lot of inexperience on my side. So I, I fully take my responsibility for, for you know, the bits of that that didn't work or people that didn't like. But yeah, it's um, now you put it like that. It, it was quite a quite a challenge to to make all of that fly but you know we but we got there i think we sort of even though the the uh um the the arc was cut short which which meant we never got a lot of the payoff that a lot of the stuff we set up never got paid off so it was a bit tricky but we did we after a while we did get into our rhythm like paul and india and i like we often like the funny ones or if there was a funny scene like we all just cheered up and liked it. I think we, I think individually and together, we all just liked ones that were funny. Um, and we started to add, put, put suggestions in and add libs in. And we got, we got a bit of a relationship after a while. Um, and so, so, so we, we kind of got there, but it was just a rocky, rocky start. I'd say. You must've loved Faith Stealer then, if you like the funny ones. <laughs> you are absolutely on the money. I think, don't tell the others. I think that's my favorite story. Dwayne, bang on the money. I absolutely loved that. And I, I had to listen to it for one of these extras the other day. And I don't, you know, you don't love listening to yourself, but you got to do it. And it really made me laugh. It's such a funny script. It's like, we all loved it. I can, you can, you can hear Paul is having fun. Indy's having fun. I'm having a ball. Um, I, I, I think that's my favorite. I thought I, I'd like, you can't make all of them all like that, but we always loved the fun ones. And I think that was something we got a lot of Kerry's and a lot of that arc got a lot of trauma and a lot of tragedy and a lot of very bleak stuff. But the stuff we always liked were, you know, just like, so I remember a scene in, sorry to leap forward, but I remember seeing in memory lane where we're all eating ice creams. And I was like, well, he wouldn't know how to an ice eat an ice cream. So he just shoves it in his mouth. And she's like, you're not, you're supposed to lick it. Don't just shove it in your mouth at once. Like, so we were always like, the funny ones and like things like other lives, the sort of bit of the fire, that was outrageous, but the kind of farce element. But I really, truly love Faith Stealer and there's some amazing performances. Although I do tend to call it show stealer because there was one scene that we all watched and we were cracking up, which was the Church of Whoops. Whoops or, be you know, praised. The, whoops be praised. That is so funny. John and, Dorney. And again, John Dorney's first appearance and he came in, stole the show, show stealer. It was his. It was hilarious. I listened to it the other day, and it still made me laugh. There are loads of gags in Faced, and really, really clever gags. Um, I listened to your episode uh, with Chris Thompson um, about Faced. Is it Chris Thompson? I think it is. He works at Eagle Moss. Yep. Um, That's my cousin. <laughs> yeah. Is he your cousin? Amazing. Yeah. Well, you should know his name. Um, he. Uh, he. You guys did an amazing review of Faced, so please go and listen to that. Um, but yeah, I loved Faith Steel. It's sort of really funny, really witty. And it's a good Doctor Who story as well. Like it's a really good. So, so again, so the start of the second series, I was like, with a bit of a break, coming back, Paul and India know who I am. I know who they are. It, it, we started to hit our stride a bit more with the stories like that. Yeah. Doctor Who, Faith Stealer. Do your religions require ritual sacrifice, the drinking of blood or any special diet? No. Carter, come on. A joke's a joke. Where are you? Uh, hello? What is it? 
Are any of you carrying gods about your person? Uh, no, I, I wonder, is all this uh, strictly de rigueur? I mean, couldn't we just pop inside and do the form filling some other time? Your faith and religious details must be recorded before you may enter the multi-heaven. Please, Bishop Parash. You must not struggle. You're... You're in my mind. It's dangerous. The less you fight it, the better it feels. What? What are you? I am Miraculite, and all shall live in me. Charlie and I are members of the tourist faith. We worship Keris here. And we begin each day with a ritual cup of tea. Your god's looking rather faint. Oh, god. Oh, Keris. What have they made you into? Kill me, please! All right. <gasps> Goodbye, my love. <gasps> this has to be. <laughs> Say, what was the atmosphere? Because it was June, so it's originally filmed in recorded in May, came back in September to do the grace. Now it's June, so it's obviously it's a year more than a year since you've done that first block of recording. What's it like coming back a year later to see that? Yeah, is it just four straight back into it? What's it? Yeah, a bit. Yeah, I mean, I was still the new boys, there were still little echoes of just trying to work out your position with. With the you know, and again, you know, we we do a lot of talking about the actual stories, but you know, like so the doc, you know, about the Eighth Doctor and Charlie. But a lot of it was like Paul and India and I trying to work out how we work, and um, so there was a bit of confidence coming back to it because you just sometimes if you just have a break from something and come back to it, you're you're just better at it. Um, but we're but at the same time, we are still trying to work out our way, and I like I think Paul. I like I, Paul is like a, one of the most incredible voice actors there is. He's incredible. He's very very private. I don't think naturally we'd have been friends, and I think he was unsure about me. I think if I can put this in a shorthand, if you've seen like the collection sets and the interviews, I, I feel very much there's a lot of similarities actually between Tom and Paul. They're both from Liverpool. They're both absolutely. Everybody loves them. Everyone knows they're two of the most amazing doctors ever. But I think when I hear Louise Jameson and Matthew Waterhouse talk about their experiences working with Tom, I'm nodding the whole way through. I'm going to leave that there. Um, so, you know, uh, we got on really like we got we got on really well. And we got on with the job really well. But there was just a large degree of uncertainty. And yeah. I, I I completely I could see lots of echoes of like oh yeah. Do you think Paul? Do you think I mean? Well, firstly, what what was going on in terms of the universe with no time? Did you understand how the universe? I don't think time anybody worked? does, and I don't think anybody. If if anyone says they understand the universe without time, they're lying. I don't really know what that means. I think even Gary said like I think the writers struggle to get to grips with it, and I'm like no 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 you know. No nonsense. <laughs> no, no surprise. No surprise there. You know, like, I love the I, divergent arc, but if there's any element, it's that <laughs> element that I struggle with the most. <laughs> so it's like, what we do, if we if I go if I say, Doctor, we were in the TARDIS. Were were? What do you mean were? There's no such yeah. thing as time. It's like it's almost impossible to. It's. A, I think it's a really great idea. I just don't think. I, th- I think I agree with Gary that I think maybe the writers struggle to get to grips with it, but I, who can blame them? So um, was it Gary's concept? Was this, was the whole Divergent Universe Gary's baby? How, how did, do you know how it um, came about? 
No, it would have been part of, you know, this would have been discussed with Jason and Nick and I don't know exactly who. And I think Alan, of course, Alan Barnes had done Neverland, which led into, you know, anti-time and he was very central to Zagreus. So I think it was a just a direction. I think, And as I think Gary said... They just fell down a rabbit hole they couldn't get out of. Maybe. Who knows? But look, you know, I, I think you know if you've got if you've done a few successful seasons and people have liked it i think it's a really healthy instinct to experiment i mean you, you know people talk about big finish now and, and you hear a lot of criticism that they're not experimenting enough and they're just doing sort of mix and match franchise stuff i don't other opinions are available these are not necessarily my opinions but like experimenting is good and if you can't experiment on audio where can you the thing about experiments Sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. Sometimes they're a bit of a mixture, and I think this is one of those cases. But I will always defend Big Finish's right to experiment. I think it's a healthy thing to do with Doctor Who, a healthy thing to do on audio. But there were a lot. It just came at a certain time where there was a lot of stuff going on, so it was it was really rocky. It was kind of now I talk about it, it was kind of really exciting, but it was very rocky, very up and down. Like I, it was for me, it was like major highs. You know, my new best friends are India Fisher and all this kind of stuff. And then major lows because you go online and everybody hates you. So it's sort of very rocky. I never hated you, Conrad. Thank you. That's <laughs> so, right. Absolutely not. Not everybody. That's for sure. Yeah, but you know, no, you know what I mean. I'm just like whatever. Yeah, I know, so we, yeah. we, we, we did. Get I get one. Room. I get one negative review on on the podcast, and I, I, you know, it cries like a baby. In a dark room me. for a month. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah and of course, without post Gallifrey, the, the, you know, it's not like Twitter. Each post is like a four pages long. So when someone doesn't like you. You know, that's some bedtime reading. That's you know, that's a whole essay. But I, I'll just go back to Paul brief, briefly. Although there was real uncertainty at first, and also I think he had, an, I don't want to talk out of turn, I think he was generally having a rough time. And I think he like he suffered from insomnia. And being locked in a studio for seven days is doing Doctor Who will drive you bonkers, with the best will in the world will drive you insane. So it was tough. But we did find our stride. And like, you know, I'd say that this Louise analogy is really good because, you know, we, we did a, a convention, online convention during the pandemic, and it was just so lovely to see him again. And we're all, you know, we found our way that like, yeah, it's me in India and this oddball. And we just got, we kind of got into our little groove and both uh, Paul and I love cinema and we found, we found our level and, and he was really helpful in a lot of just stuff that you, if you haven't done audio, you just don't know. I remember India walking in and saying that she, on her first day, she just didn't know to breathe. So she'd say her line and just hold her breath and wonder why this woman's getting blue in the corner. And also paper, when we weren't using iPads, very hard to wrangle paper in a seed change. You know, you're mid-rant and you've got to sort of do all this stuff with paper. It's really, really hard. And he was just like, five-page scene, page one in your left hand, two, three, and four on the stand, page five in your right and that stuff can just save your life and turn you from being a bit of a mess into knowing. It. And he taught me so much about that stuff. So and I've got enormous respect for Paul, it has to be said. Mm. So you, you come back for the second season, of course, I said just before the Grace got released, after you've actually already recorded your first season, it's announced Doctor Who's coming back. Uh, but suddenly, you know, Gary and Big Finish realise there might be a huge intake of new fans once the show starts. And they've got the most recent Doctor whacked away in a divergent universe that isn't making a lot of sense to anybody yet. So we have to bring you back. And so your second season comes out, which is just rushed, I think probably in some ways rushed in terms of trying to finish the storyline, the divergent universe and get everyone back again. Um, what's the feeling like in terms of the fact that 
what should have taken four or five seasons to unpack and explain is something now pushed to two and you're back to back to the real universe. Yeah, um, we didn't really know, you know, what was going on behind the scenes, particularly. So we're not there worrying about the scripts. The script just uh, the only the first thing we know about a script is a heavy thud on the door and you hear it you know, as it comes through the mat. So we didn't really know about all that scrambling. Obviously, we knew Doctor Who was coming back. In fact, I was out with Clayton Hickman, Scott Gray and Spoltz, Tom Spilsbury from Doctor Who magazine. And I took them to see a play. And then afterwards, Clayton had a, took a call and he just said, or had a message from Mark Gatiss. He goes, I've just had a message from Mark Gatiss. Three words, it's coming back. And that's when we all discovered it was coming back. It was a very cool night. None of us have forgotten that. Um, so we knew it was coming back. And I kind of, I think I just thought, well, this probably means the end for this. And I remember the next life, there was a palpable sense of we may never do one again. Um, and there was a weird moment where I went to India's house and I remember Nick Briggs was there. And I think me and India were thinking about calling it a day. Like the two of us is going, let's, you know, it's better to leave a party early than before being asked to leave. So maybe we should go and maybe we should go together. And I remember Nick going, oh, this is just like when, it's like being there when Wendy Pabry and Fraser Hines decided to leave together. Um, but then I think one of us or two of us were offered a check for a job and we're actors and we need food and electricity. So we both said yes and just kept on doing it. Um, but, but I think at the next life, like, I was very aware that this could be the last one because I was excited as a Doctor Who fan that it was coming back. So I was just like, never mind, big finish. What's, what's happening here? Um, and, I'd be, and I can't remember when this was, but I got to go. To, and again, this is just me being jammy. I knew somebody who worked on, was working on the new series and she said, oh, do you want to come down and have a look? So we went down to, I think it was Flanetley, and this deserted building where they were filming the long game. And we got to look at the sets and the props. And they were like, oh, do you want to come and see the TARDIS? And I'm like, yes, please. And I was so shocked to see police box doors. I was like, well, that's a nice prop, but where's the TARDIS? And then, you know, she opened the doors. And I had that moment of walking up the ramp and seeing this coral control room for the first time. So it was, it was just wild. I have to show you, I brought one thing because there were props everywhere. We walked into a room. I've still got a photo of it. And there was, we didn't know what they were, but the Cassandra was there sort of just propped up against the wall, the face of Bo, half a Dalek. <laughs> and I was like, I'm going to nick something because I'm an actor and we always, actors, we love to nick things. So I nicked one thing and I've got it here to, to show you. So I, I chose, out of all those things, I chose to nick this it is oh, oh, so it's one of the missing posters it's fairly modest it was basically it was sitting on a stack of photocopying paper and it's the missing one of the missing posters from rose tyler and i nicked that and framed it so that was the cool thing i nicked um as a side hop but um yes yeah, so frame too thank you dude thanks <laughs> um so yeah we knew it was coming back so basically i just thought the next life was it really and the, but they, then they had that cliffhanger. Yeah, they had that cliffhanger. So I guess I must have known it was coming back. But I don't know. I, I think just mentally, we when the TV show came back and I knew it was come back, I think mentally I just thought this is this is going to wind up soon. And I was amazed we went as long as it did. I think Gary said that the subscription when people said it was heard it was coming back, the subscriptions just vanished, yeah. and they were like, "We don't know how we're going to afford this next series. The money's gone." But then I think when they realised how long it was going to be for the show to come back, I think they, I think well, they, I think they, the subscriptions, subscriptions did sort of creep back Fly up. Back yeah. Again. Okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, speaking of the next life, it, it must have been pretty cool to have uh, Paul Darrow as your dad. 
are you kidding me? And Big Finish have always done very well with the casting. And I, my Big Finish parents are, so Paul Darrow is playing my dad. Let's all just take a moment for that. But then later on in the Gallifrey series, I was playing a completely different character. And I was playing the son of my mum, who was Mary Tam. So my Big Finish parents are Paul Darrow and Mary Tam. And I was like, actually, that's kind of, that kind of works. Very cool. In some bizarre way, I could kind of see that. Very. I'd already worked with Michael Keating, who was, you know, amazing. And he was so much, there's little moments where he's, you just see him being Villa. You know, there was a moment where he was talking about his wife's schizophrenia and he was like, oh, yeah, my wife's schizophrenic. And then he just looked off to the distance and said rather wistfully, but then again, you're never alone with, with schizophrenia. And then just in a sort of Villa, slightly sad way. And I was like, oh my God, you're really Villa. Paul Darrow was the full Darrow. Um, uh, I think Gary introduced me to him saying, he's playing your son. And he went, he's too old to be my son. And I was like, oh God, we're in for a day of air. Um, <laughs> but he was lovely. We had to then go out and have our photos taken. And on our way, I thought, right, I'll just put in a good word. So I said to Paul, like, I'm really excited to work, to work with you. I love Blake Seven. And my mum's very excited because she always used to say about you, oh, he can put his slippers under my bed any day of the week. And Paul went, <laughs> send her my love like smooth as <laughs> pure darrow he darrowed he gave that the next life a good darrowing and yeah what an absolute thrill this is the dream come true stuff you know i've had a good moan about boohoo people were mean to me on the internet but like the highs are ridiculous that's just ridiculous so yeah and he was brilliant like that lovely voice he's really really nice really nice performance doctor who the next life you know what i want girl did you find it? No. Ah. Well, never mind. It's not so important now. Now then. You want to see some real magic, yes? I knew it. Very well. You will not make it through the night. No one ever has. But if he does... He has the right to hunt down... His accuser. He has what? You heard, Keep. Tally ho, Guidance. Tell these men I concur. Now, most places in my universe, the condemned man gets a hearty meal. Who's there? It's me, my love. Just seeing how you are this morning. Today's the day. Today? What? There's something here, Doctor. Something that makes what this planet does happen. All I needed was help. Someone ready and willing and able. And then when you got washed up, well, I thought, perhaps there's something in this God stuff after all. You know, my hero. <laughs> I'm no hero, perfection. No? You look like one to me. Up until this stage, all the Eighth Doctors are being released, you know, sort of the, a new season coming in blocks and really, you know, one after another. Um, after this, though, once we go back to the real universe... It takes 18 months before the next release. Um, even though you record three or four together about 12 months later, but they're now then being released, not in sequence. So, you know, every three or four months, yeah. the next one yeah. comes out. Um, so you just, it, it's all just slipped back into the normal range. Yeah. Um, did, did you notice that that had happened in terms of, was there much change? Does it affect you at all in terms of your performances or getting together? No, and, not, not. And, and, and are you, 
are you still reading the fan responses and getting depressed at this stage or um given yeah, up by uh, now? i have to be fair like let's be fair like i wasn't like obsessively trying to kind of <laughs> see everything but the thing is i'm a doctor who fan so i'm gonna yeah. you know i was on there anyway trying to find out about the new series so you just after and to be honest after a while you just you know, by that time i'd kind of had that initial kicking and by then i was pretty the exoskeleton was real i would after after a while i was fine with it um but uh what was what no we weren't aware of it in terms of it didn't make any difference to us when they're released but what was what was lovely and it was so helpful because all, all alongside this this is like while doctor who is one of the most important things in my life this really was a side job compared to what i was really doing because during all of this i was sort of you know touring and having a stint in the west end and doing like my main actual focus in my life is all my theater stuff so this just slotted in very very nicely and the beauty of it is anytime you went to an audition or anywhere they always say so what have you been doing and i was always able to say oh I've, an audio play of mine is just out or oh next month an audio plays out or oh i'm just recording so there was always something you were always doing something because these things were peppered uh, you know throughout your year so it was a really good support it was always, it was really lovely and to be honest useful having this stuff as a as a sort of sideline really um but yeah it, it, i don't think it made any difference i loved I, I know I loved Terra Firm and I really loved other other lives like very very much. They were they were two of my favourites. I think. Speaking of Terra Firma, um, is that where you brought your old friend Lizzie Hopley in? Yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah, you're right. I think there was a. It wasn't like I was pestering to get her in there, but I think I'd mentioned her to Gary, and then a role came up, and you remember him phoning me, and I was like, yeah, I was back temping at Twenty Century Fox. Yeah, and he phoned me and went, "This Lizzie Hopley, what's she like? What to do?" And I was like. I told her how fantastic she was, and yeah, he did get her in uh, with Gemma and Sampson, who came in, and 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 Lizzie's a Lizzie's a one of the most remarkable actors I've ever, one of the most remarkable people, because she is so curious and productive. She's one of the most productive people I have ever met, and her and Dorney are unbelievable. You know, are just unbelievable. They're just powerhouses, and she's so creative, and she does she like at any given moment. Lizzie Hopley is writing plays. She's she's starring in plays. She's doing she does amazing things that you never get to hear about because she's got so much stuff on the go. But yeah, she was she was really brilliant in that. And I was also quite pally with Joe Lidster as well because I think we'd we had kind of lots of conversations. He'd had a certain re reaction to the Rapture that he'd put out, and I'd had a certain reaction to my stuff I'd put out. So we kind of bonded over over how we deal with all of that. Um, but yeah, Terraform was great, and Lizzie, yeah, of course she played. Uh, it's with Gemma and Sampson with Lee Ingleby and I think Paul McGowan would happily swap being India like get these two middle class twits out of here and let's get Lee Ingleby and uh, I think he'd have happily swapped <laughs> I don't blame him yeah and uh, you mentioned other lives too that's probably my my favourite post-divergent arc story so you like the comedies as well huh yes but there is a darkness in other lives that's yeah that's that's always that's always present and um, I love well, I love that era of history, and I think it was a really clever way to get the alien carers uh, sort of inserted into that story, put him into a freak show. Um, I think that was the perfect thing. Was it difficult, do you think, to get different situations for carers to fit into as that alien character? Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of always surprised they let him 
you know, if I'd have been a producer, I'd probably left him at the next life and said goodbye, thanks for helping the universe, but we're off. Like, I mean, that makes sort of sense. So I was really surprised and always very grateful that they kept me on, even though they'd cur- curtailed the arc. I think Gary's like, well, it's not his fault that we could curtailed it. Let's keep him on. Um, but there was that, as you say, there was that real question of like, what do we do? How do we make it work? And I remember in a bar in Bristol, you know, because you'd stay up and talk chatting and stuff. And I remember us saying, when I, I said, like, what about a French farce? It'd be quite funny, like, to make a feature of the fact they're trying to hide what he's like. And I said, what, what about a French farce? They're trying to hide him in the cupboard and all this kind of stuff. And I said, you could, I said, I, do, I was kind of just sort of saying, there are ways that you can make this guy not fitting in actually quite funny. And Gary Hopkins in Other Lives did that brilliantly. Like, yeah, locked in a freak show, ridiculous disguises outrageous accents i'm so sorry to the people of france uh, me and india would, should have just been shot for that um but like uh yeah it was really fun and i, I liked that and I, I enjoyed the fact that there was some yeah making a feature of like who are you what a weirdo and i started to get a bit more of that because of course he was in these situations where people were like who the hell are you and actually that gave that gave me a lot more it actually that really helped the actual mm. that grit kind of helped because i don't I, I don't know about you but i'm not really interested in like hello i'm a space person from the space universe i'm like who cares like it's nice to get a bit of grit of people saying you're a freak and then you know what are you is like so in, in a way it actually helped that kind of yeah that, that kind of yeah that's kind of bumping up against the world really helped a lot i think i do think humor is an essential part of drama and if you haven't got humour to get the highs, you don't get the lows either. And I think sometimes yeah. a lot of authors can take themselves way too seriously. And once once you lose the humour, you lose the interest. I've, I've been reflecting, um, watching Star Trek Discovery and Star Trek Brave New Worlds. And Brave New Worlds, I adore. It's hilarious. It's great fun. It has terrifying episodes. It has, but it has total comedy episodes. Discovery just takes itself too seriously. And I'm just thinking, I'm just turning off. I just every episode is just too serious and where's the fun and you don't want to be with when it's no fun you just don't want to be there and i think you know one of the winning degrees of doctor who is it's fun and you want to be there and so yeah i think i think a lot of a lot of the stories you had um but you had lots of experimental writers it's interesting looking through the writers that you had so many of them only the one or two stories would be finished and that means that gary would have been working his pants off no doubt script editing as well because trying to get the scripts together um, yeah, I think lots of people are doing a lot of work to make things work. Um, I will just put out another one in that block, Scaredy Cat, which we've also done a review on. It's a really, you know, Dwayne's scariest episode. Um, worth mentioning just in terms of that as well. Another, another Lizzie Hoppy being terrifying. Was Lizzie in no, that? No, I think, no. Oh, it, no? Sca- Scaredy Cat, it's Night Thoughts, Lizzie Hoppy. Oh, it's Night That's Thoughts. A, yeah. That's Scaredy right, Cat, I thought you were talking about because I absolutely despise the story. Uh, it's right. probably my least favourite story. Looking, you're right. I, was watching I, was, video. I was looking at Dwayne like, are you all right, mate? What's going on for you? <laughs> like, yeah, it's going to catch your favourite story. You okay, hun? Yeah, but you're then, right. I'm just, I'm just having nice thoughts, aren't I? It's similar covers. I, there you go. I did want to ask you something about that. Do you remember much about, I know it's only a day's recording, but Arthur Boscombe, it was his only ever appearance in, that's a pronunciation of his name, isn't it? Uh, Bostrom. Arthur, Bostrom. Oh, Bostrom, sorry. Bostrom. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I, I love my LOLO. So there's been a few uh, actors from there. Do you remember much about that recording and, and him? Yeah, I remember. The, the, it's, it's, 
it's very corny, but of course you always do remember the people. Um, and the people I remember from that were Ros Blessed, Brian, Bl- uh, Brian Blessed's daughter. And I think I knew her through Caroline Morris, who played Eremem. They were buddies and we'd be, we'd had some we'd had some actor parties with a lot of incidents and red wine and shenanigans. So I knew her and she was great. And Arthur Bostrom, I was really excited about for the same reasons. And he was great. He was very fun. I think Nigel Fares knew him. And I think Nigel brought in a lot of... Um, people michael chance i hope i've got his name right but yeah so i think i think he knew quite a lot of the other cast so i think they were quite so he seemed very comfortable and was very warm and lovely i don't have anything sort of scandalous or anything interesting to say about him but he was great and i I loved working with him so gary heads off to bbc wales and joins doctor who and nick briggs takes over as executive producer Uh um and you have one more story as curious um is that was it Nick's decision in terms of it's just time to wrap up this whole everything, wrap up you, wrap up Charlie, and just move on with what he wanted? How did that all come about? Yeah, I've no idea because after Gary, I think when Gary was there, I lived I lived in South London as well. So I was part of the, you know, Broccoli Collective or whatever they were called, you know, Joe Lidstead or whatever. There was sort of, we were all knocking about a bit. And I think after Memory Lane, I really didn't think we were doing any more. I'd saw I'd by that time I'd kind of really let it go. And I think the TV show had started or I think after memory lane, I just had assumed we weren't doing any more. And when the new regime came in, I never imagined for a moment. I just kind of, I just kind of closed the door on it. I just thought, Oh God, well, that was an amazing run. Gary's gone to Cardiff. You know, we're back in the universe as a new regime. I just imagined they wouldn't want to do it. So I was really thrilled when I got a call from Nick saying, hey, we're going to do the last story, um, which is, I just thought was really good of them just because it probably wasn't their bag or, you know, obviously if you start a new range, you want to do a clean slate, completely start again. So the fact that they tied that up and honoured it at all, I was really, really chuffed about. Um, and also there's a, there's a missing story. I've actually got a script for one of a story that was going to be made but then got shelved because of the uh of switching it back to the new universe or whatever um so there's actually an eighth doctor charlie and kerry's missing story and i've got the script so that's it's kind of, it's kind of quite cool being a doctor who you feel like oh, i'm really in doctor who because one of my stories is missing that's great um, so that's share, share it later i'd love to see it <laughs> Who knows? Yeah, yeah, but yeah, absolutely. And, and I think it was Barnaby Edwards who was directing, and I'd never worked with him before. So it was new director, new producer, new everything. But I was just really, genuinely, I was surprised to be asked back. Uh, but I was really grateful that they just ended it. They wanted to do an ending story, so I, you know, really, really grateful for that. So. And did you always film in Bristol? Did you always go to where Paul was? No, it started off in Bristol. We used to hike down to Bristol for a week, which was brilliant because it was a very cool studio. Massive Attack uh, were recorded in there as well. So that felt very, very cool. Then I think it was the moat mainly in Brixton. Was that the one in Brixton? I think it was. Um, That's the one I did most of them. That's where I recorded most of my stuff. Then I think they moved on to Ladbroke Grove or somewhere else. Um, But yeah, so yeah, Bristol and the moat were my two main places in fact i think no i did i again like you see i'm terrible actors don't trust them anywhere i you know was in the booth and i remember i thought i'm just going to write my name here like i don't know why i wrote something silly but i put my name on there i remember coming back six months later and then it was the wall was completely black with actors just like writing their own name so i think i started that that tradition when i left we used to do these signings these long long six hour signings down in 
barking at 10th planet um but i I sold a lot of my script at the end of it um partly again i'm an actor i'm trying to keep food and trying to keep the lights on um but also i just thought you know they're just sitting in a cupboard gathering dust and i remember there's a grayest one i remember giving that to a guy so you know the guy bought it and i just wrote on there to his name's rory to rory look after it you know love conrad and i said to him so i was like good luck have fun autographing that and then I think last year on Twitter, I just got this DM with, and he said, I looked after it. And there's a copy of Zagreus and it's signed by everybody. And that's just, that's just beautiful. I mean, that's, and again, you know what? I think this is important to say. I mean, I've, like you said, I've said, I've had very mixed feelings about my time on Big Finish. I I love it. But of course I've got reservations and it was a mixed experience. Um, but you forget about Doctor Who. It never. I've known Doctor Who all my life, but I'd forgotten this when. And it was this guy, Rory. He said to me, "He's like, I lived in a little village. I was very lonely, awkward kid. Didn't know what's going on. I was trying to deal with my own stuff." And he said, "Every time your CDs came in the post with your team, that was my team, and it got me through." And I just thought, I never even occurred to me that we we would be someone's team. And but of course, Doctor Who does that. Whatever version of Doctor Who you see, that is someone's version and I hadn't and that has got to be the biggest that's the best thing in the world isn't it if you're to be to be to, to think that you could have been part of the Doctor Who that gave them all of this all the joy and stuff it gives all of us and and just to have been part of that, that is, that's a big kick so that that makes everything better basically for, for me you guys for five years were Doctor Who you were the new Doctor Who I loved all the other stuff I loved all the other characters love all the other doctors but they were just slotting into the canon as it was you guys were creating new doctor who and so year by year you get a new season come out and some seasons you loved and thought were fantastic other seasons thought oh there's a good one in there these yeah these ones yeah but it was you were the new doctor who new new series every year and that that's to me what i was waiting for every year what was coming new for doctor who that was you guys that's amazing. And it never goes away. And of course, it never goes away. Like this is 20 years, 20 years ago, I started doing this. and I'm still talking about it. I know we will hear people say that, Doctor people say that. But even though you know, you think you know this stuff, it still takes you by surprise. And, and you know, sometimes, you know, when I did see Paul in India, you know, it just occurs to you like we like the three of us have been through something that no, no one else has ever done or ever will again. And, and it is. I was talking earlier about like we talking about the question about what it's like being a companion is like there's so much there is the act the characters being a supporting character but then there's also being a, how it how it falls down in the studio like you've got a lead man who you've got to support and your guest cast it's a bit like going to the TARDIS like in in the moat studios the door was blue you'd go in and there's a big control room in there and there's just the three of you and then tomorrow you arrive somebody else and a whole load of new people turn up and it's just the three and you three stay the same while all the people each each adventure is new people and new things it is a weird old job and it's it's brilliant it's still it's still big a big part of my life and i'm under no illusions this is the thing that will outlast me and that i'll be remembered for and that's like well if it's dog two then you know hooray Corey, it's been amazing talking to you. Thank you for your recollections. I hope we can get you back in the future when we do some randomoids and hit some of your stories um, because I've adored talking to you tonight and looking forward to future conversations. Dwayne and Philip, thank you so much. This has been a real kick. Thank you so much. Ladies and gentlemen, for your education, 
enlightenment and edification. What are we waiting for? Come along. Where are we going? To pay our respects to the Duke of Wellington. We want Monsieur Desroches and his wife to return home to France with good reports of the exhibition. Police public call box. Christian, have you ever seen anything quite like this before? No, my dear. Of all the curious artifacts on display, this is surely one of the most curious. The Crystal Palace, designed by Joseph Paxton to house the great exhibition of the works... The works of industry of all nations. Hyde Park, London, the year 1851. It wouldn't do to let them think that there's been any resistance to this great showcase of industry. Quite, quite. Or that the British public aren't completely united in their support for Queen and government. Yes, all right, Fazekali. Help! Help me! Shout as loud as you like. No one can hear you. And even if they did, they wouldn't do anything about it. Not here, not in this place. Tell me if I'm wrong. Despite the long absence, you are still unwell. I'm not who you think I am. If that were true, then you would not be here. I I would not invite a perfect stranger into my home. But you are here. Only because I have nowhere else to go. And now, ladies and gentlemen, a very special surprise. No expense has been spared to bring to you, for the first time tonight, the latest addition to my parade of oddities. How did that happen? Well, once again, Conrad, thanks so much for being with us. We uh, appreciate that. Can you stick around and uh, give us a recommendation of something? Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. But, but, But with our recommendations... Uh, for some reason, my list always says that it's Philip's turn to go first. Great. Well, I'll go first then. Um, I actually mentioned this one along the way. I'm going to recommend The Natural History of Fear. It is unbelievably experimental. It is wacky. As, no, wacky is the wrong word. It's experimental. It, it is not like any other Doctor Who story you will get. It has an amazing conclusion that you're not expecting. The sound design is magnificent, and a lot of it is just a spinning top. In fact, that's the cover is a spinning top, um, with some very amusing pictures on the sp- on the on the on the top itself. I remember listening to this the first time and thinking, "What the heck is going on?" And it doesn't really make sense to get to the end, though. There's some amazingly powerful scenes throughout, and so it's a series of very powerful scenes trying to work out how they connect together. And then at the end, you understand what's happened. And yeah. So in, in the last two minutes, it's like, oh, now I get it. Yes. <laughs> so yeah, no spoilers for this one at all. But I really recommend it. It's yeah, it's like nothing else Big Finish has done before or after. And um, yeah, really worth listening to. So that's, that's my recommendation. Very good. That's be close to my recommendation because it's one of my favorites too. I'm glad you recommended it. It's a it's a brilliant brilliant story. What about you, Conrad? What have you been listening to or or watching? Anything you like? Yeah, I've got a few. I've got a few things here. So, firstly, I've got to. So, the Doctor Who podcast world is something I'm very very involved in and love dearly. So, I've got to shout. I'm going to give you my so a top five uh, podcasts to to subscribe and listen to. Um, one is we've talked about Kenny Smith, the wonderful Big Finish archivist. I have to shout out to his podcast, Pieces of Eight that he does with Rebecca Chapman. If you like Big Finish and you like The Eighth Doctor and Paul McGann, Pieces of Eight, subscribe to that. The next is Flight Through Entirety with 
my very dear friends brendan jones and nathan bottomley if there's any planet in which you're not subscribed to that subscribe to that immediately um doctor who literature for those of you who like books that is a wonderful wonderful uh podcast going through all the target books in publication order and is a wonderful wonderful listen that's an essential um a new one I've, that i was appeared on recently called too hot for tv uh, two brothers dylan and jackson reese it's a really really funny quite cool podcast they really know their stuff and they do everything that wasn't any everything about dog two that wasn't on tv and my sort of personal favorite is trap one which reviews any aspect of doctor who at all wonderful team of people and i'm one of the co-hosts so if you want to hear more of this nonsense then listen to trap one but in terms of like a drama or something to listen to or watch um i i was actually in the studio yesterday recording something that i'm very excited about and i've been told i'm allowed to say this much about it it's not doctor who and um, but in the 80s i don't know if you got this in australia there was another show on saturday night robin of sherwood did you guys get that in australia yes. with michael Prade and all that lot. well like doctor who there are official audios of these with the original cast michael Prade, ray winston all of those those gang and as part of the 40th anniversary celebrations of robin of Sherwood next year um i can't what am i allowed to say i've done a little a small play with an amazing guest actor not one of the leads a guest actor um who and he's a big amazing actor who's reprising a character he played in the original series um a lot of these audios are available i think you can get them on audible so go to wherever you get your audio books and stuff and look up robin of sherwood um so yeah robin of sherwood barnaby eaton jones right that's it yeah yeah, yeah. amazing amazing yeah very good and what about you Dwayne? what are you going to recommend well i'm going to recommend an eighth doctor Kerry's and Charlie audio as well. And I've already mentioned it. I'm going to recommend Other Lives. It's one of my favorites from the non-divergent universe. Um, apart from being an amazing story that really deals, I think, well with Kerry's. And as you've already said, it's got some amazing accents in it um, and lots of humor. Um, there are also some very dark elements, too. Uh, it's a very dark period in history in some ways, in some in some corners and it deals with that well we've also got um a, a, an interesting story for the eighth doctor as well being mistaken for someone else and so he features on the cover of that cd uh sporting a very different look a bearded eighth doctor so i really enjoy other lives so that's my recommendation yeah it's a great story i thought you're gonna go the faith stealers but there you go no other lives okay well once again Thank you so much, Conrad. It's been a pleasure to have your company. Thank you, guys. And thank you, Philip. Appreciate you, your company too. You know I do. Yeah, and I appreciate yours too, Dwayne. Oh, thanks, mate. All right, we'll catch you all next time. Bye, everyone. This has been the Sirens of Audio, episode 174, How to Be Invisible, with our guest Conrad Westmass and your hosts, Philip Edney and Dwayne Bunny, celebrating 20 years of Eighth Doctor companion, Kerry's. Original theme music composed by Joe Kramer. More about us from sirensofaudio.com. Comment below to let us know what you thought of the episode or contact us via email at sirensofaudio at gmail.com or any one of our socials. Thanks for listening, audio files. We'll hear you next time.